Your language is so creative. I do have quite an unusual relationship with language, for sure. Like, I'm funny about, like, 10% of the time. (laughs) Biscuit, fortunately, Tourette's has a much higher hit rate. Biscuit, headshot. Taylor Swift died. I have no evidence to back that up. Tourette's is a condition that makes you stand out. Being in front of however many thousands of people you were at the Albert Hall. Yes. Spreading that message. Being able to sort of talk publicly in a space like the Albert Hall. That was just like, well, this is hitting more people than I do on the on a bus. Our next guest is a writer, artist, performer and real life superhero. Jess Tom, alter ego, Tourette's hero, has turned her experiences with Tourette's into a powerful creative force. Her award winning stage show Backstage in Biscuitland received international acclaim from London to New York. Jess has written for The Guardian, The Observer. She's done an amazing TEDx talk at the Royal Albert Hall, and she's spoken for the British Science Association. Her goal is crystal clear. Change the world one tick at a time, using a blend of humour, advocacy and art to redefine the disability narrative. We're truly privileged to have her join us today. Quick heads up, this episode contains strong and sexually explicit language, which are involuntary aspects of Jess's Tourette's. Let's get into it. Let's see how great minds think differently. Big box, small box. Little fish, cardboard box. Alan Hansen. Wow. (laughs) Jess, thanks so much for coming on. Biscuit. I'm so excited to see what we discuss. So I tend to always audio describe myself at the start of any event or meeting or training. Just the visual characteristics that if you couldn't see them would be important to know about. I will always say I'm a white wheelchair using woman with curly hair and a very cool wheelchair. So I'm Ben. I'm a white man with curly hair, glasses, a red hat, black jumper, sitting in a chair that's a 1930s cinema chair that we reconditioned and is covered neon green. Neon green! Kermit the Frog died. Everybody talks about being creative and drawing pictures or writing things or making things. Your language is so creative. Hedgehog. Isn't it? I do have quite an unusual relationship with language, for sure. Biscuit. And uh, I think... Leaning in and embracing the spontaneous creativity that my neurology biscuit gives me access to and that having Tourette's gives me access to has been incredibly powerful biscuit, but it wasn't always easy. I think for a long time, biscuit, I had like lots of people been raised to uh, with narratives that are around uh, standing out being Uh, shameful or having a body or brain that worked in a different way being something that you should try and hide and I tried desperately to minimize my tics Mm. and to yeah pretend that Tourette's wasn't part of my life Um, and that didn't really work biscuit because it is and it's part of who I am and I would say the tics and the Tourette's and I would try and distance myself biscuit from 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 that part of me um biscuit because it is complicated to know how to have a relationship with the things you say that maybe aren't things that you would choose to say or your conscious thoughts biscuit um and ideas that I don't always recognize as my own biscuit hedgehog but through Tourette's hero leaning in to to that spontaneous creativity and learning to see value in the way that my biscuit brain 
uh, works and in the ideas mm -hmm. that come from ticks, like that colliding together ideas to create new things. Um, I've learned to really appreciate that and value that. And uh, that's grown and involved in ways. Biscuit, that I could never have imagined. Biscuit. Have you always been, fun have you always been funny? Biscuit. <laughs> I think my friends would, would say that like, I'm funny about, like, 10% of the time. <laughs> Biscuit, fortunately, Tourette's has a much higher hit rate. Biscuit, hedgehog. Uh, Biscuit, and yeah, my, the, my tics are, uh, are funny and surreal in a way that the conscious part of my brain can only dream of. What I love is... Hedgehog. Seeing you surprised hedgehog. and laughing... Sausage. ...at what comes out Biscuit. of your mouth. hedgehog. There's this innocence of, like... you. you Hedgehog. Yeah, you're not fully in control of it. And so what comes out surprises you, but also 100%. makes you laugh. Fat biscuit, often, and, and sometimes shocks me or surprises me or like terrifies me. Um, biscuit, and like anything that I've ever uh, known, Biscuit has the potential to become a tick. Biscuit, but I don't get to choose what those things are. Um, biscuit, but they do become like markers in my life and markers of time like I can think about certain periods of time it's like oh that's when I was saying lego loads or squirrel loads or okay. they but they are part of my life and part of everything that I do biscuit and hedgehog biscuit my friends and family can't hear the word biscuit without thinking about me um biscuit and my favorite was when I was working uh, at a children's playground and we would have biscuit time every afternoon and the kids would be like what well, biscuits for real and it's like yeah biscuits biscuits for real hedgehog don't biscuit. leave the classroom <laughs> not yet not yet not yet <laughs> not it's yet, literally yet. nine o'clock in the morning <laughs> now it's not ready time. <laughs> uh, and so your relationship biscuit with your ticks now how would you describe that um, biscuit, I would describe that as a sort of collaboration. And sometimes that's a creative collaboration. Uh, sometimes that's a more tense uh, collaboration. Biscuit, and that's part of everything that I everything that I do. And um, biscuit. And now I say my ticks and my turrets, because even though they're not part of my conscious thoughts or things that mm -hmm. I would choose to share, biscuit, they are from my brain and they have the imprint of me on them. Biscuit. Um and accepting and enjoying and valuing that part of uh, how my body and mind works has been transformative. Biscuit, and crucially, like developing the language to Biscuit and the confidence to explain my experiences unapologetically to the world. Um, Biscuit, and I think if I, whenever I'm talking to parents or families raising a child with Tourette's, it's like the, the thing that makes the difference. Having someone on, you, in, on your team, having mm -hmm. allies and people who understand and have got your back and being supported to have the skills to explain your experiences, whatever they might be, and knowing when to ask for help. Biscuit. And that's something that loads of those things we're conditioned to think of as bad. Yes. Um, but they're not bad. They're part of knowing what you need and being in a position to, to do your best work and live your best life. Fuck it. Can you therefore just explain the, the social model of disability? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hedgehog biscuit. Um, so there are there are different ways of thinking about disability and their models of disability. Sausage dogs. That's the sausage not one dog of them. model is not one of them. 
yet. Hedgehog biscuit. I might, I might, I might ponder on that a bit more. <laughs> Please. The traditional models, ways of thinking about disability, are the medical model and the charity model. And biscuit, they have slight differences, but what they have in common is that they see someone as disabled because their body or mind is impaired in some way, and they see that impairment, the facts about someone's body or brain as the sole disabling factor in someone's life. Biscuit, so they focus on a need for cure or for pity. Um, Biscuit, there is a way of thinking that was developed by disabled people um, that's called the social model of disability. And that says, Biscuit, it's normal for bodies and brains to work in different ways. Biscuit, um, and for some people to have impairments and others not. What disables us, what makes us disabled people, is a failure to consider that diversity of body and mind in the way that we, Biscuit, organise and shape the world. So it's not the fact that I have Tourette's that makes me a disabled person. It's the lived experience of barriers because the world hasn't been calibrated to think about people who say Biscuit all the time or who will use a wheelchair. Um, Biscuit... The reason that that way of thinking was particularly powerful to me is, Biscuit, is that it's much more a much more collective way of thinking about disability. It's not about changing individuals. It's about changing the systems and structures and attitudes to ensure that people experience less disabling barriers and can fully participate in the world. Fact, and on a very there are you know it's not perfect, but I think for me, truly connecting with the social model was a massive relief. Biscuit, because it's like, I am not the problem Mm -hmm. within that. And actually, by naming barriers, we can start to change them. Biscuit, and for me, when I say I'm a disabled person, I'm saying that within the context of that way of thinking, which doesn't diminish me in any way. It simply acknowledges my Mm -hmm. experiences. um, And that's that's a, it makes me feel strong and it makes me feel powerful and means I can be part of finding solutions yeah and so much of that sounds like it's just partly taking ownership and taking responsibility yeah but it's also expecting other people to take responsibility and to take ownership because the other idea that i think we've been thinking about uh more recently is the idea of like that we live in a normative supremacy Mm. so we live in a world in which a normative way of doing things is privileged and prioritized above everything else And that means that if you need to do something in a way that isn't the typical way of doing things, that can feel shameful, but that's only because of this expectation that we all do things in the same way, which is bananas. It doesn't make sense. Yes. So, um, Biscuit, I think, and and again, understanding it as systems means that we can take action collectively rather than just feeling that responsibility very, very individually, yes, and very personally, biscuit, and it means that we can give and receive solidarity, biscuit, with people who have very different impairments or who might have very different experiences of the, what their body or mind or access requirements are, biscuit. But actually, that experience of exclusion and of being made to feel like uh, you can't exist on your own terms or in the way that you need to is, I think, something that lots of different disabled, neurodivergent, and chronically ill people share. Yes, I can Fuck. imagine. Hedge Do you... Biscuit. So you were diagnosed, what, in 2006, 2007, something like that? Yes, yeah. In my uh, it's sort of mid-twenties, mid, early to mid-twenties. Fuck it. And so I when... Back then versus Hedge now, yep. how, 
what do you see from a societal perspective in terms of that social model? Like what's Fair. changing, good, bad? Yeah. Well, I think there's some things, some things have changed in positive ways. Lots of things haven't or have stagnated or have become harder. And some of that is about the political systems that we have and, you know, 12 years of austerity politics. And some of that's about, it's about what exists in the world, but it's also the sort of listening to lots of those narratives and lots of the way things are talked about. It's very easy to take that on board. Mm. And I and it's very, um, it's very easy to be made to feel like the problem. Um, and I would be... The things that make me feel hopeful and optimistic, Biscuit, are seeing young disabled people um, rejecting some of those narratives in really bold and exciting ways and connect like connections between people and ideas. Mm. And that's the thing that has had the most impact in my life is connecting with ways of thinking that celebrate disability culture and that centre disabled and neurodivergent ways of thinking rather than pressurising us to do things in neurotypical ways. Biscuit, when I first started making theatre, I think I I was very aware, Biscuit, that as someone who has Tourette's, I hadn't seen lots of theatre. And so and it, that wasn't a space that I often felt safe in or mm. welcome in. Um, Biscuit, but I still felt this pressure to try and make theatre in a way that, uh, you know, non-disabled people did. And so it looked and was like proper. Biscuit, yes, now, I can, now I care about that. A lot. I don't care about that at all. And I'm much more interested in thinking about how we, like what neurodivergent and neurodiverse led ways of not just presenting art, but making it and being and understanding the world. Because I think that's how we will get to more interesting places. Yeah, I totally For agree. Biscuit. How, how do you think uh, Tourette's is represented in the media now? Biscuit. Or, no, sorry. Fat. Sorry, let me Sausage. ask that again. Yeah, I am a sausage. How did, how was, sorry, I've just whacked the mic. Whack it. Headbutt the mic. Headbutt the mic. Nobody, nobody headbutt the mic. Fuck it. How was Hedgehog Tourette's represented in the media historically? And is there any change Hedgehog. now today? So I think that there, there are lots of misconceptions and misunderstanding about Tourette's. And and there have been some incredibly powerful pieces of media, storytelling, documentaries, by incredible people who um, were incredibly brave in sharing their experiences, frankly and powerfully. Um, Biscuit, sometimes there is, I think that there is a focus on aspects of Tourette's that grab people's attention, mm. like involuntary swearing and swearing ticks. But... I have a complicated relationship with that because in every me in every sort of interview I do, I feel like a pressure to say only 10% of people with Tourette's have coparalia, which is the technical name for obscene tics. Um, biscuit. And you know, so 90% of people with Tourette's don't swear. Biscuit, fuck it. But I do. I am one of those. And so I also don't want to diminish that part of my experience. And I want people to understand what where that comes from and I think one of the the biggest thing with Tourette's I think is that it's oversimplified in terms of often in terms of how it's presented um Biscuit it's a really complicated 
condition and it's nuanced and biscuit. So for me, and for lots of people with Tourette's, there are oppositional tics and impulses. That's the urge to do to do the opposite of what you would want to or should do in any given situation. Biscuit, that can be funny. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, there's lots of videos of people shouting bomb in an airport. Bomb! Including me. But there are also really complicated aspects of that. So it also affects my physical safety. So I have, if I see something hot or sharp or hard, I will automatically move towards it. And I think sometimes people will talk about neurodivergent people or some some neurodivergent conditions being like not having a good awareness of danger. I have a really good awareness of danger and, and a really shit ability to stay away from it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, think, I know things are dangerous. <laughs> That's it. You know? And it's instantaneous and automatic. And I think and I think that, that those ticks are some of the most difficult because they can look in context. They can look targeted. They can look personal, and it can look deliberate. Yep. And they're the types of tick that often get young people into trouble in school, or will get people in trouble with the police, or you will talked make about you feel your basket. Your PE teacher at school, fuck, and the basketball. Yeah, and that that is a really good example of how teachers and people in positions of power don't need to have diagnoses to understand things in the context of neurodivergence and disability. So when I was in year eight, I didn't have a diagnosis of Tourette's. I think I was understood to be neurodiverse. Um, Fuck, biscuit, hedgehog, cats. We were in the gym and we were told to, as I think a million teachers must say every day, put the basketballs down in front of you and don't touch them. I immediately picked it up and threw it straight at the PE teacher and it landed square in his face. Uh, and I'm not that good a shot if I was choosing <laughs> to, but turns out Tourette's is. <laughs> Sausage, hedgehog, cat. And he immediately ordered me out of the gym and sh- like, I was so shocked. I am, biscuit, I am not a rule breaker, just, although my ticks very much are. <laughs> um, and he came out and he talked to me and he asked me why I'd done it. Um, and I said that I didn't know why I'd done it and I hadn't intended to do it. And he believed me. Biscuit. And that was an incredibly powerful moment for me. And I think I appreciated it at the time. Biscuit. But I appreciate it even more now as an adult and as, as an adult who works with young people. Because that would have felt incredibly humiliating and shocking to him. But he listened to me and he trusted me. And I think, and he did not need diagnosis in order to do that. He understood the context, um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that teacher, and I'm incredibly grateful for the lesson that that teaches us all that we can understand things without needing to know the detail of someone's medical history. And I think, do you think a diagnosis is important? I think a diagnosis is really can be really useful and can be really powerful. I think for me. I had known I had Tourette's for a long time before I got a formal diagnosis. And I think I resisted it for a while. I didn't see what it would add to add to my life. And I think I was scared of what that might mean. Mm. But actually, it, what it gave me was community and access to language and access to understanding. And understanding something that had always been part of my life. But I suddenly was like, I had a new new ways of explaining it. And ultimately that was the re- it was friends saying to me how do we explain your movements to other people? And it's like without that explanation that can feel tricky. 
There are real barriers to diagnosis, and lots of that is about the systems and about the medicalization of certain of like of those processes. What is that system fact, and journey like from a Tourette's diagnosis assessment perspective? Patchy. Okay. <laughs> it, it it is it, certainly in the UK. It's not consistent. Uh, and it's not cons- like it's not it's so it differs in part different parts of the country. Sometimes that will be diagnosed by neurologists. Sometimes that will be diagnosed by um, w- within child and adolescent mental health services. There are lots of misunderstandings I think about Tourette's. So people will often say, "Oh, well, you must be really anxious." And it's like, I like of course heightened emotions do change and impact on my tics, but I don't think they cause it. Mm. And it's like I don't th- I'm not a particularly anxious person, biscuit, and my tics aren't a barometer of my Stress level, stress or emotional state, um, biscuit. But they do change and are influenced by any heightened emotion. Mild peril, biscuit. I got three injuries during Toy Story. Toy Story three it was a very, a very tense, uh, tense film experience. But it's like so. Of course, that changes the expression of ticks. Um, but I think that some of those things can be the can be focused on as the sort of people can spend a lot of time looking for triggers or looking to understand when actually it's much it's sometimes that's useful oftentimes things happen because that because someone has Tourette's and their body moves and how much do you Fat. manage your Tourette's versus Fat. allowing biscuit your Tourette's if that makes Fat. sense yeah, I don't. I don't have like a great ability to suppress. So, yep. lo- mo- lots of people with Tourette's, Tourette's will be able to suppress their tics okay. for short periods of time. Sometimes that is automatic. So you suppress um, automatically, maybe when you're doing particular tasks without like that being a conscious choice. So people love saying, "Oh, you know, if you sing, do your tics go away?" That's not my experience, but it is for some people. Okay. Um, but if I'm involved in like drawing or like swimming, then some my tics might simplify. Um, fuck hedgehog cats my approach to managing my tics and my experience is to take quite a practical approach so rather than trying to address it on a neurological Mm. level um, I address it in a very practical way so I have chest banging tics that uh, mean that I bang my chest hundreds of times a day so I have padded gloves to protect my hands and chest in biscuit um, drinking means that I can get very wet if I was trying to use a glass without a lid so I use squeezy bottles or straws or um, cups with lids. And so for me, that those like managing the impact of ticks in practical ways has been the most effective. And managing some of the, the knock-on impacts of ticks, like sort of biscuit, obviously, you know, as you get older, it's not a condition that is straightforwardly, you know, degenerative. But if you move in very repetitive ways over long periods of time mm. that has that takes a toll on your body and so thinking about how to manage pain and how like how to practically keep myself as healthy and strong and well as I can be that's where I would put my energy rather than trying to change yes. or minimize my ticks because that that has never been super effective um fat and hedgehog. just to clear up Sausage. your Tourette's isn't going anywhere fat. you don't grow out of it when you're an adult, as Fact. you can read on the internet. So ticks change throughout the courses of course of someone's life. And some people do have much more obvious ticks to other people in childhood than they might do in adulthood. I would also argue that people get better and more confident managing those things and knowing knowing their body and mind and uh, and taking different approaches. Um, for, I think it's 
I think often families are told that like lots of people grow out of ticks. And I I have not seen the research that that is based on. And I also think that there is a danger with that. I've met lots of young people with Tourette's who were waiting for their ticks to change and go rather than finding the ways to succeed and live and pursue their ambitions and dreams with the body or brain that they currently have. Yes. Um, and I think that idea that you can only be successful if you manage to grow out of your ticks or minimize your ticks or medicate or manage them. And all of those like things, you know, medication can be really useful for some people. And like, there's and there's therapeutic approaches that can be really helpful, but none of it is, um, none of it is a guarantee. Mm-hmm. And none of it should, I would be, mu- I'm much more interested in us focusing on how we support a diversity of being and doing and making and living than try and, shape force people to conform to to one way of being because i don't think that that's realistic and i think that 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 takes huge emotional tolls and puts the puts pressure and responsibility on individuals Mm -hmm. rather than sharing out responsibility for creating a more accessible and inclusive world yeah tell me about being a wheelchair user I have ticks in my legs that mean that my walking is very wobbly um, and so that I was falling down for a long time. I walked in an unusual way for a lot for um, for years before I started using a wheelchair, but that became it, that became increasingly impactful. Um, and my world was shrinking. I was doing less or less and less and less because because it was hard to move around. and it was a decision in some respects to to use a wheelchair as a tool, but that was the reason that I needed to make that decision rather than it feel natural was because of all of the negative ideas we have about what wheelchairs are and the idea like lots of non-wheelchair users think about them as a sign that things have got really bad or that they're uh, that 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 they're restrictive or limiting and it's like when actually my experience of wheelchairs is that they're liberators, they're freeing. I'm an absolute wheelchair geek. You don't want to get me on this subject. I, so I, I do want to get you on this subject. For ages. Taking that first step to say that this might be a tool that is useful for me was difficult. As soon as I started using a wheelchair, I immediately understood the difference it was going to make in my life. And I got a lot less head injuries. I was able to go loads more places and I was able to use my energy... Uh, and focus basically for things that mattered to me rather than on just trying to get from one place to another in a not very safe or successful way. And I suppose was part of leaning into that sort of pragmatic approach, understanding that that wheelchairs are tools. People use them in different ways. I do need to use a wheelchair all the time, but lots of people with Tourette's might use a wheelchair and lots of other conditions that fluctuate might use a wheelchair on some days and not on others. Okay. They're tools. It has, um, it's, it's meant that I can travel and perform and do all sorts of things that are much harder. I mean, they're impossible without a chair because I can't move around safely. Tell so, me about this chair. Fact, <laughs> this chair is um, was uh, part funded by Access to Work. So Access to Work is um, is a government scheme that provides the practical support working disabled people need to do their jobs. Um, and uh, learning about Access to Work, um, which was, I mean, I was told about that, first told about that by another neurodivergent person, um, and at a time where I was doing a job that I loved, but my ticks were increasingly making that challenging. And p- 
particularly I was getting lots of injuries and I was finding it really hard to do my job. It can cover things like, you know, accessible transport it, so um, and can cover items of equipment and it can also cover support workers. Um, so it access to work and other forms of care and support, those are the things that my life is built on. They, the right support enables me to have a, a full life that mm. I'm in control of and an independent life. Whereas a lack of support would disable me very, very quickly. The right support is the difference between me being able to, to live and contribute in a way that I choose and being restricted and limited. So it's, 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 with, it's again, within that social model of disability, it's not our impairments that make us, that are, disa- that, are, that are the only disabling factor. For me, a lack of support would instantly turn me off as an artist. And I think, I think that gives me an urgency. It means there's an urgency to the work I make because that always feels precarious and it always feels negotiated, especially in the climate of the last decade or so. It does, it's a really, I think it's a hard time um, for lots of different communities, but I think it's a hard time for disabled people because those support systems that are about equalising the playing field often are being misunderstood or misrepresented. Um, and fuck, hedgehog, but I also want other disabled and neurodivergent and chronically people, pe- chronically ill people to know about access to work and to utilise it and to understand that those processes aren't always easy, but it is an act of resistance to use them and to keep using them because they are what open up our world. And that there are plenty of, there, there are plenty of people with, with, condi- with like ranges of conditions that need to use chairs, including people with Tourette's. It is a condition that means your body moves mm-hmm. in ways that you can't always control. Um, and for me, that particularly affects my legs and walking. Um, and so it's right to use the tools that each person each person needs. And that should be done on an individual basis rather than on a um, an idea that this type of support is only is for this type of condition. And there's loads of overlap. Um, for I think one of the powerful moments of connection for me was really connecting with the idea that independence doesn't mean doing every single thing for yourself. Independence is about being in control of your decisions. Biscuit. Um, biscuit. And asking for what you and need. Asking and knowing what support you need and asking for it and accepting it. Biscuit, I don't need to be able to make my own cup of tea. That gets very messy and very dangerous <laughs> very quickly. But independence is about being able to ask for it and having the support to mean that that can happen when I want it to. And I think that that, that is, we live in a world and uh, particularly in political systems that that uh, have a very have a different have a very have a very uh, have an idea of independence that's linked to capitalism and is linked to what productive like conventional ideas of productivity and, self, and value right? exactly exactly um, but actually we're all interconnected and I think that's the interesting thing that the pandemic could have and should have taught us and probably did teach some people is that we are all interconnected and health isn't just an individual thing we do need to think about the health of us our, you know us as communities and collectives because that's how we would make real change for everybody um how did you find covid fact, covid it was really challenging in lots of ways i'm clinically extremely vulnerable to mm-hmm. covid so i'm at higher risk from getting really sick so i spent a lot of time shielding 
The pandemic isn't over for lots of people. There is there and and has been a mass disabling event. There are loads of people who are experiencing impairment and illness because uh, of an un, because of the approach to managing COVID in this country. Um, and I'm keen to make sure that they can connect with ways of thinking that that help them manage that transition because I know how difficult it is to manage changes to your body and mind and your expectations. Can we just talk a bit about Tourette's Hero and yeah, the work that you do that's so important? Yeah, Biscuit. So Tourette's Hero is a creative organisation that works across art forms. So we make artwork um, and have creative programmes and we work with museums and galleries and theatres. Uh, and our most recent show, Biscuit, that we were touring last year was burnt out in Biscuitland. Biscuits! <laughs> Hedgehog cats! Fuck it, which was a blend of like film and performance and conversation. Biscuit. We have a solidarity programme, which is how we talk about our work supporting other disabled neurodivergent people. For a long time, we'd been doing that for a long time, but hadn't got the right language for it. All the language around it, you know, outreach or community, mm. it all felt icky. It, none of it felt like it sat in a good place for us politically. Having the language of solidarity and saying this is our solidarity work and our solidarity programme reflects our position as part of the communities. You know, we, we call this podcast The Hidden 20%, but, I, but ironically, Sausage. it's for the 100%, and, yeah. right? Because yeah. the the 80% of people who are not neurodivergent yeah. uh, also need to hear this. Yeah, uh, yeah, completely. And I They're think, also involved in this. Fact, yeah, and sometimes I will say the people who most need to sort of see... Tourette's Hero's work are currently non-disabled people. Yes. So if your body or mind changes, which lot, most people will experience changes, it's that's pretty inevitable. Or if you have a child who who um, experience, is, is neurodivergent or experiences the world in different ways, that can feel really challenging if you've never been had opportunities to think about that or be exposed to disabled-led ways of thinking. And um, People get there, but they get there slower mm -hmm. and more painfully. And I'm really keen to like reach out into the world and make it people okay to be themselves as they are and to accept and love that part of who they are because it's um, and to get there quickly so that they can get on with uh, living in the way that they want. Being in front of however many thousands of people you were so, at the Albert Hall. Yes spreading that message that's one of the most still one of the most exhilarating and terrifying experiences of my life it was it happened just quite, you in the middle of the albert hall yeah which is a, an incredibly it's a huge venue and a very intimate venue at the same time and the sort of the noise of that many people and, and all like the pre, like the energy of that many people is absolutely incredible and the acoustics the sort of, yeah right. there's so much about that space it was a it was a yeah absolutely mind-blowing experience and and was probably one of the first times I'd really done any public speaking so uh <laughs> go although, in at the deep end yeah exactly and you know I had Tourette's is a condition that makes you stand out and often I will have conversations over and over again that doesn't always feel like a choice sometimes that is definitely a tool and a way of living um but being able to sort of talk publicly in a space like the Albert Hall that was just like well this is hitting more people than I do on the on a bus so it's like <laughs> great um uh biscuit and it was also an opportunity to 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 really 
reframe and center. Like so often the narratives are that we achieve despite, despite ticks, rather than understanding that that's that I partly do well because of that, because of what that gives me and because of accepting and loving and learning from that part of me rather than trying to pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, because this is how your brain works. Exactly. This is how my brain works. And so I wouldn't have done what I've done if I wasn't autistic. Fuck. Like, that's how it is. Fuck, yeah. But there's so much pressure, pressure to try and replicate and to uh which is the bit that's hard if the being me is the bit that's easy it's just i didn't feel like i had freedom to do that for a long time and that fact whenever we do any sort of training or public speaking now i always say things like you know attention uh, attention and focus looks different for different minds and bodies if i'm still and quiet i am not paying attention to you because every part of my being is going into controlling my body and brain. Okay. Um, where, and, and I think that those, like, I say that so often because I want other people to hear it. And I want people who need to, who need to listen and focus in different ways to hear that so that they can give their attention to the things that are important to them and to building knowledge and not just on building skills of masking and suppression and changing and conforming. And as part Fact. of that TED talk that you did at the Albert Hall, Fact. there was a uh, a piece of art Fact created it. that you played. Yes. So that was a piece called The Alchemy of Chaos. So the idea at the heart of Tourette's Hero is using ticks as a creative springboard, both for ourselves, but also sharing them and inviting other people to respond creatively. Biscuit, that is quite a straightforward process when you think about sort of how visual and surreal and funny some vocal tics can be. Because they're all published on, Biscuit, on your oh, website. Yeah, and are there to be used and to inspire. We've had amazing poetry, amazing drawings, amazing artwork. But with the alchemy of chaos, what we were interested in doing was taking a more challenging aspect of Tourette's, which was the tick attacks, the intensifications of tics uh, that I experience um, every day, sometimes several times a day. And they are periods where I completely lose control of my body and speech, uh, con conscious speech. And so it's sort of, the ticks are a cluster of ticks that go on, that, that can last for five minutes or it can last for much longer. And we had been recording that data for a long time. And that's part of like, you know, managing that, those episodes, understanding when they're happening, sort of monitoring changes in them. So we always record them and it was like, okay, what... What if we take this really challenging aspect of Tourette's and this thing that means that I can't spend time on my own, that does mean that, I'm, that I need an intensity of support and that I, there are sort of significant risks that I face on a daily basis because of that part of my body and brain. How can we take that as a creative catalyst? How can we say, even with those things that are really challenging and really difficult, um, how can we use that and present that creatively? So the Alchemy of Chaos was a collaboration with Dr. Joseph Hyde and Dr. Thomas Mitchell. And we shared with them the data from my ticket tax from a year. Should we have a listen to it now? Yeah, let's do that. Fuck it. Sausage. Clink. Donkey. Biscuit. 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 Fuck. Biscuit. Hello. Biscuit. Fuck. 
sausage. Table tennis. Ten. Clink. Clunk. Fuck it. Biscuit. Hedgehog. Cat. How is that listening to that? Yeah, it's still really, it's still really interesting to me. And um, there are elements like alco- that, that sort of investigation for alchemy of chaos was just the tip of, I think, other ideas that you've reminded me about and made made me feel sort of energized and excited. I'd like to really, I'd really love to think about exploring some of those things further. I think Fat, words are just hedgehog. like I, I was having a look through. Obviously, Fat, there's like four thousand. Hedgehog. There's four thousand ticks on the, on your website and so i i couldn't get through all of them but the the sort of the word association and things Fuck. that you put together Hedgehog. that are so seemingly sort of disparate um Hedgehog. i just think is i can imagine Sausage. it's wonderful for people to hear Fuck. understand learn Fuck. jump off from Sausage. a kind of creative perspective um Fuck. If you need a band name, it's a really good place to start. <laughs> Fuck it. Sausage Dog Appreciation Society. <laughs> Fuck. My mum would like that. She's got sausage dogs. <laughs> what's like uh what's coming up for you this year? Tourette's Hero. Yes. What does it look like? We're about to launch our young artist development program, which is for disabled, neurodivergent, and chronically ill uh, young creatives aged 14 to 26. Uh, And the theme is the Department of Wonder and Play. We're also, we've got our new show, um, Burnt Out in Biscuitland, um, which we made and toured last year for the first time but hopefully this year we will share biscuit in more places and in more ways i'm also really excited about a project that is a new research project that we are working on this year called rebel play biscuit um my background is in adventure play and i think i'm very aware that often playgrounds are spaces that disabled children first learn to expect and accept a worse experience than their non-disabled peers like look playgrounds should be these amazing spaces in our community but actually if you're a disabled child they're often monuments to your exclusion Mm -hmm. there's lots of stuff around the barriers to play we're going to take a slightly different approach in that we're going to speak to and interview disabled children and adults about a positive play experience and then we're going to use that archive of positive ex- experiences to commission new activities, artworks and events. There are so many barriers, but we also know that people are playing. And I'm really interested in how play, art, creativity finds a way through, often in quite hostile and difficult settings and environments. Yeah, it's um, like those plants that grow through the cracks. 100%. And, and so I w- we're going to look at that, celebrate that, and think about how we can use that, collect that knowledge and give it back to disabled communities to create new things with. Love it. Well, wish you all the best with this year, Jess. Sausage! Thanks so much for coming on. Taylor Swift died. Tommy Robinson did it. (laughs) I'll leave it there. (laughs) Fuck it. Jess. I have no evidence to back that up. Fuck it! You've been listening to The Hidden 20%. If you're still knocking about, then let me introduce you to the band. First up, main man on the mic, host Ben Branson. Our wonderful producer, Bella Neal. 
and the man who'll probably try and cut this bit, video editor James Scriven. Not forgetting our wondrous theme tune by Jackson Greenberg. Lovers or haters, we want to know, so be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening. For the lovers amongst you, you'll find us on TikTok and Instagram at Hidden20Podcast or over on Hidden20.org where you can join our mailing list. <laughs>